to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. This reading is in connection with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come, as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But let's read then verses 43 to 46, of, or 23 to 46, rather, of chapter 21 of Matthew. And when he entered the temple, and that's the Lord Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say, From heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, From man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard to put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, 
and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. That's as far as we'll go with the scripture reading. Let's sing in preparation for the preaching about the, the kingship of God. And as we sing Psalm 93, the four stanzas, think of the king that we're singing of as Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord God, the Father, has placed Jesus as king on the throne. So Psalm 93 finds fulfillment in Jesus' kingship. invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 562, or 61. The focus of the preaching will be on the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. And as church, we confess what that means in question and answer 123. There we ask, what is the second petition, Your Kingdom Come? That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you, preserve and increase your church, destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. That's as far as the confession goes. In response to the preaching, we'll sing from that psalm the Lord Jesus quoted from in our reading of Matthew, Psalm 118, the stanzas 6, 7, and 8, where Jesus said of himself, He is that cornerstone mentioned by the psalmist. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like you to think for a moment of the last three prayers that you personally offered to God, whether privately or maybe in the family circle. In any of those prayers, did you pray for the coming of God's kingdom? How about in your last ten prayers? Did the topic of God's kingdom or the fulfillment of God's kingdom, did that come up as one of the key desires of your heart, something you pondered carefully and sincerely made pleas to the Lord for? I have to say that for myself, the answer is sadly no. And I suppose that for many of us, it will be something similar. And I say that's sad because the Lord Jesus taught us otherwise, didn't he? We saw last time that the first request we are to make 
in our prayer. Our top priority in life is to hallow the name of our Father in heaven. That's already something we have a challenge with, don't we? How many of our prayers don't simply start with a simple address and then launch into a list of our needs and requests? However legitimate those needs are, the reality is we, we often hardly stop to praise God in our prayers, spending time adoring His majesty and everything else about Him. And if we did that more often, reflecting on God's greatness, reflecting on the miracle of His love, then very likely we would come to honor the second petition better. We more often would start to think of His kingdom as well, and start to pray about God's kingdom. For the Lord Jesus gives us this matter as our second priority in prayer, right next to praising God we are to pray that His kingdom come. The Father's name and the Father's kingdom are to be at the top of our prayers. Why is it that they are so often at the end of our prayers, or maybe not in our prayers at all? So what we need, brothers and sisters, more than anything is to have our hearts changed around in this respect. Even though we are certainly God's people and followers of Christ, we are so easily distracted from the main points, what our priorities are to be. Too often we have our priorities upside down. Well, this afternoon we hope to get those priorities right side up as I bring you this word of the Lord, framed as a prayer, Father, light our hearts on fire for your kingdom. Father, light our hearts on fire for your kingdom. Kindle in us a love for our king, a love for our king's subjects, and a love for our king's triumph. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, what was he teaching us to pray for? Well, we know that the your, the you that he's speaking of, is our Father. That's how the prayer begins. But what is meant by the Father's kingdom? And how is it that a kingdom comes? Isn't a kingdom something that either exists or doesn't exist? If we think, for example, of a human kingdom like the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the UK, we know it exists now as a defined territory. Would we ever ask, would we ever wish, would we ever speak about the kingdom, the, the United Kingdom under Queen Elizabeth, that it might in some way come or come about? Would we ever talk that way? It's an unusual way to speak. And outside of the Lord's Prayer, I don't know if we would ever naturally speak in that way about a human kingdom. Well, brothers and sisters, we, we might talk that way if we still lived in the age of kingdoms, when kings regularly fought against one another, or when there were rivals within a given kingdom trying to take over the kingship. 
Imagine that situation for a moment. A, a servant, let's say high up in the palace, gets it in his mind that he wants to be king. So he secretly makes plans with a number of lower servants to find a way to get rid of the present king and install himself as the new monarch. The Bible gives us an example of such a, an attempted coup in the person of Absalom. Absalom was even more than a, a servant in the palace. He was one of King David's sons, and yet he plotted to kill his father, the king. He plotted to become king in his place, and to do that, Absalom even started a war. Now, just for a moment, picture yourself in that circumstance, in this situation of strife and warfare, with the true king being challenged by an illegitimate usurper. There would be people following the true king and supporting David, and there would be people supporting the rebel, Absalom. And people on both sides would be hoping and wishing and praying and fighting for the cause of their particular leader. What would they be praying for? The followers of David, for example, they would be praying for David's kingdom to come. That is, to advance, to become fully established, to become the recognized kingdom without any challenger. And Absalom's followers would be wishing the opposite, wishing for Absalom's kingdom to come, to be established and set up, to have him recognized as the only true king. In that situation, David, we know, is the legitimate true king appointed by the Lord, but David's kingdom is under attack. It's being undermined, and, and many Israelites did not want to honor King David's rule. They would rather be governed by the sweet-talking Absalom. They would rather have Absalom's kingdom come. Well, brothers and sisters, when you understand that, that background of talking about a kingdom coming, then you start to understand that the second petition of the Lord's Prayer is a battle prayer. It's a battle request. The only reason the second petition exists is because our Father's kingdom is under attack by a usurper, an illegitimate usurper. You wouldn't need to pray for a kingdom to come, to be established, unless there's something opposing that kingdom. What Jesus is highlighting here is that the royal rule of His Father, it has enemies, it has opposition. There are hearts, many hearts even, that do not want God the Father to rule over them. And do you know, brothers and sisters, what the most dangerous opposition to the Father's kingdom is and where it's to be found? If I were to ask you, which enemy of God the King do we need to watch out for the most? what would your answer be? Your thoughts might go to Satan. And certainly Satan is a vicious enemy of God's kingdom. Maybe your thoughts go to evil people who publicly express hatred for Christ and actively do whatever they can against the rule of Jesus. And they too are powerful enemies that we have to take seriously. But the most dangerous enemy of the kingdom of God that we face is the enemy, brothers and sisters, that you and I see when we look in the mirror. 
That's the enemy that's the most conniving. The rebellious hearts that beat in our own chest do not want Jesus to be king. We have a natural disposition against God the Father, against God the Son. And we need to target that opposition that exists in our own hearts to remove that opposition first and, more for, first and foremost. Your kingdom come is a prayer for heart change in the first place. That's what the catechism is getting at when it says, summarizing what the petition means, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. We don't like to submit to our Father. Satan and the world's attacks will come up a little bit later in this answer of the catechism, but the first thing we need to be aware of is this natural opposition, the sinful inclination of our own hearts to hate God and love ourselves. That's been our our M.O. ever since the Garden of Eden, where we humans put the crown on our own heads in disobedience to God, and we said, we're going to rule ourselves, we're going to rule the world. Our starting point, brothers and sisters, the instinct in our heart is, I am king, I am boss. I am Lord of my life, and I'll do exactly as I please. And we have, you know, little sayings, little ways of communicating this to one another. The kids will say, you do you, I'll do me. You do you, I'll do me. A previous generation would simply say, each to his own. And the message of either saying is this, don't bug me. I'll do what I want to do. It's no wonder, then, that we do not easily or naturally think about or pray about the kingdom of God. It's not natural for us to want to pray for the rule of our Father, for that rule to flourish. And so we need to, to reorganize our thinking, and we need to come with that prayer, Father, kindle in my heart a fire for your kingdom. Let that burn in me. And really, that starts with having a heart full of love for our King. Our Father's kingdom will never become our top priority unless we love our Father with all our heart, soul, and mind. This is the greatest battle that we face. We see this in the parable of the two sons, which we read in Matthew 21. It's a description, this little parable that Jesus speaks, it's a description of the church community in the days that Jesus walked the earth. It's a picture of the covenant people. The Israelites were all heirs of the kingdom. But when their heavenly Father asks them all the very same question, two answers are given by his children. The first son says, I will not. The, quest, the, the, the instruction was, son, go and work in the vineyard. First son says, I will not. What kind of answer is that? That's a, an answer of disrespect, isn't it? The kids know this. If you say to your father, who's given you a clear instruction, I will not do what you ask, 
you're disrespecting, you're disobeying. It's rebellion. And clearly, this son has no use for his father. He goes off and does his own thing. But something happens to this son. Sometime later, the son turns around and repents. And he actually goes and does what his father asked him to do. He goes and works in his father's vineyard. The son has a change of heart, and he turns to love his father. Well, this son, says Jesus, represents a certain group among the covenant people. It represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sons and daughters who first chose to pursue a life of selfish desire, but later came to regret it and turn back to their God. Jesus says about them, they are entering into the kingdom. That's one son, one part of the covenant community. The other part answers, the other son answers differently. He instantly says to his father's instruction, I go, sir. I'll do that. I'll get to work right away. You can count on me. That sounds very courteous and very submissive, but he never followed through. He never actually did the work. His lips spoke love and respect, but his whole lifestyle communicated the opposite. It communicated rebellion. I am not going to do what you ask. I'll tell you I will, but I'm not going to do it. This son, Jesus says, represents the Pharisees and the other church leaders of the day who paid lip service to the Father in heaven, but who never had the intention of building up the Father's kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, the natural question comes to you and to me, which son are you? Am I? Son number one or son number two? Pig will, pig won't. Who are you? Please notice that both sons, both sons have to have a change of heart. But only one of the sons recognizes it. That's a reminder to us that all covenant children, all church members, are born with sinful hearts. We hear that at every baptism again, that the very act of baptism is a reminder that we have impure hearts that need to be cleansed by the blood of our Savior and by the Spirit of our Savior. Every last one of us is born with that self-centered heart. The question is, do we see that in ourselves and do we turn in true repentance to our Father in heaven? Does each of us pray sincerely and daily, Father, forgive my sinful inclinations and kindle in my heart an overflowing love for you, my King? When that is the disposition of our heart, then we'll be eager to love not just our king, but also the fellow subjects of our king. The Lord Jesus in this parable was speaking of church members, but very easily he applied his lesson to the kingdom of God. We're going to just talk about that connection, church and kingdom. 
He does the same in the parable of the tenants. That was another warning story directed at the chief priests and the elders of Israel. Because they rejected the father's son, after all the prophets were sent, the father will reject them. And Christ punctuates the message, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. I'm going to take the kingdom from you. He's speaking to the church. The covenant people, they were going to have the kingdom removed from their midst. That means they were already at that moment in possession of the kingdom. So the church and the kingdom, they're not identical, but they sure do have a very close connection. I point this out because the next thing mentioned in the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation is the church. Preserve and increase your church. Some people have scratched their head about that and, and even thought that was out of place. What does the church have to do with the kingdom? Some people find it irritating or offensive that the catechism brings the church into a discussion on the kingdom. The church to, to some people seems so narrow, so restricted to human institutions like this congregation. But the kingdom, on the other hand, well, the kingdom, that, that has no human authorities, it's got no human organization or human structure. The kingdom, that's a freewheeling thing. Whoever wants to serve God is by that fact alone serving in the kingdom, and they don't have to worry a whole lot by, about, about the church, some people think. that The kingdom's the thing, not the church, say some. Yet the Lord Jesus never says that. Nor does he imply it, nor does Scripture anywhere teach something like that. In fact, this very parable of the tenants that we read teaches that church members are heirs of the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to such as you, members of the church. And remember that it was Jesus who said this to Peter in Matthew 16, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That tells us that the church belongs to Jesus. He is the church's head. He is the church's leader. He is the church builder. This is his organization, not ours. And what was it, what special gift did Christ Jesus give to his church? Same passage in Matthew 16, saying to Peter and the disciples, I will give you, the church, the what? the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The church has the keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You couldn't hardly get a tighter connection, could you? The keys of the kingdom are handed over to the church of Christ. They have everything to do with each other, church and kingdom. The Lord Jesus appoints elders in every church whose task it is to turn the keys of discipline, keys which bring a person in or out of the kingdom of heaven. 
And let's remember that our Heavenly Father set His Son Jesus where? After He ascended into heaven, He set Him on the throne. The throne of what? The throne of His kingdom, of course. So the king of God's kingdom is the same person who is the head of the church. So really, brothers and sisters, we have to say that church and kingdom are like joined at the hip. They're very, very tightly connected. The kingdom of God is simply put the, the rule of God. It's wherever God's kingship is recognized and honored and obeyed, there the kingdom is operating. Just like in Israel, during the rebellion of Absalom, wherever David's rule was recognized and honored and obeyed, there David's kingdom was operating. So, let's ask ourselves a question. In every faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the, the rule of God, the kingship of God, is that being recognized and honored? Is the king loved and obeyed in faithful churches? The answer, of course he is. There's certainly a lot of weakness in the church's devotion and efforts, but there's no other place on earth that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is so revered and so loved and so followed than in the true church. So think of the church as, as like the center or the hub of God's kingdom. Kind of like your bicycle tire. You know that at the center of your bike, there's a hub, right? And from that hub extends spokes to the rim of your bike tire. So the church is in the center, and, and the kingdom is like those spokes and the tire around it. The king sends forth his messenger, his herald, the minister, to, to speak to his subjects as they are gathered in the church on Sunday in the hub. In church, the king's word is proclaimed. The king's servants, the elders, they exercise discipline here in the, in the church. And then what happens to church members after church is over and on Monday and following? Those church members, they go out into the world, into their various places of employment and endeavors, and they serve the king in those different places. Church members who love the king, they want to live under that king's authority in every sphere of life, everywhere they go. So these church members, for example, they, they, they do things to put forward the king's, to, to honor the king's authority in different areas. They'll do things like gather together and start a Christian school where the education of the children is under the, the authority of King Jesus and does everything it can to honor the king. So the Christian school is one spoke of the kingdom. Another church member, kingdom subject, sets up a business and that he or she runs that business according to the principles and ethics of, of the king's commands, the king's word, the Bible. That's another spoke. 
while still others will get together to work for the Father's honor in, in the government, or in the arts, or in the sciences, or in the universities and colleges. More spokes. Individual Christians find employment and do their jobs, not in the first place for their boss's eye, but for their king's eye. More spokes. All of that, brothers and sisters, is kingdom activity because it's undertaken by kingdom subjects who are nurtured by the king's word and the king's fellowship every time they gather together as church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do those various activities, they are intent on serving and honoring their king. So, if the church, the gathering of the king's subjects, if it is the hub of the kingdom, then when we pray for the kingdom, we are praying at the same time for the church. And more than that, if we are to love our Heavenly Father and be zealous for our Father's kingdom, that means we need to be zealous for His Son's church at the same time. Father, kindle in our hearts a love for your people, your church, a love for your subjects. So that raises another question for us, brothers and sisters. How is it for you? Do you love the citizens of the kingdom, the ones that you know best here in the congregation to which you belong? Is that something you pray for and, and work on, that you, you love the subjects of the king? Do you find it easy to love God's people? Do you pray for your fellow subjects and ask God to bless them, to help them, to purify them, to unify them in the body of Christ? Do you also pray for those members who perhaps get under your skin at times? What about those kingdom citizens you might be critical of? Do you ask your Father to help you love them too? Preserve and increase your church. That also means, the increase part, that we have to think about the future church members, the future subjects of the kingdom who have not yet been gathered into his church, who have not yet responded to the king's call to faith, or who maybe have not even heard of King Jesus or God the Father. Do we also have them in mind as much as the king himself does? Remember, the Lord Jesus commanded us as church to go out to the nations and make disciples of them, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So a prayer for the kingdom is a prayer for mission work. Yes, mission work abroad. Let's never forget the foreign mission work. But equally, mission work close to home in our neighborhoods where you and I are to be a light and a salt. Do we think about our co-workers? Do we think about our customers? Do we think about our neighbors as people who might be potentially subjects of the king? They don't know it yet, but they might one day be brought in. 
and we could be the vehicle that introduces them to the king. One of the king's desires is that sinful people repent and put their trust in the king, King Jesus, and come and join the kingdom of heaven. Father, we need to pray, kindle in my heart a love for your subjects, the, the subjects that you will bring into your kingdom, as well as the subjects that are already there. Open my mouth to speak to others about your greatness, to speak mercy, about mercy, your mercy to my neighbors. Open my life so they can see your spirit at work in me. Open my heart and fill it with a love for your church, both the members today and those who, whom you will bring in tomorrow. For as the church is preserved, and as the elect are gathered into the church, the kingdom of God, it comes. It comes ever closer to the day of the king's ultimate triumph. That battle that we spoke of that's raging in our own hearts is also raging in the human race and it's raging among the angels. The rebellion of, of Adam and Eve so long ago, it wasn't just a human thing alone, but it was sparked by the temptation of Satan who himself had rebelled against the king in the realm of angels. You know from Scripture that the devil originally held a very high position place of honor among God's angels, but very much like Absalom, without any reason at all, he turned against his king, his maker. And ever since then, there's been a, a revolt in the world, and there's been a spiritual war everywhere. That's why a prayer for the coming of the Father's kingdom is, is at the same time a prayer for the defeat of the devil's kingdom and the defeat of all who are aligned with the devil. These two are at odds with each other. They, there will never be a reconciliation between God and the devil. The devil has to go down because he is a sworn enemy of God, just like his followers, just like our own sinful flesh. The Catechism puts it this way. Destroy the works of the devil every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Every conspiracy. That word caught my attention because there's a lot of talk in our day about conspiracy theories, isn't there? There's the theory that the Chinese have conspired to destabilize Western economies with the introduction of COVID-19. There's the theory that the United States with, knew all about the Twin Towers attack but deliberately did nothing to prevent it. Then there's the conspiracy theory that JFK was assassinated by his own government. Just the top three that I could think of in the last 60, 70 years. Well, anyone can invent a conspiracy. You don't even need proof. You just have to come up with an idea. And we can argue whether they're true or not. But there's one conspiracy, brothers and sisters, that is absolutely true. It's as real as the nose on your face. God tells us about it plainly in Scripture, and that is this, that Satan is determined to break down, in whatever way he can, the kingdom of God. 
The Bible describes Satan as, on the one hand, a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking whom he can attack and, and eat up. And on the other hand, the Bible says he's able to disguise himself like an angel of light. So that means he can, he can come like a lion and attack with brutal force like he does in places like China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, and other countries of that nature. Or he can attack the church and kingdom like an angel of light with, with very, in a very subtle way. He, he sounds good. It sounds so pleasant what he's doing like he does in Canada and in the United States. He just makes these little suggestions he just puts forward little seeds of ideas that once germinated will eventually lead Christians to turn their back on their king. For example, in our Western world, how many believers and churches haven't capitulated, haven't fallen for the devil's suggestion, lie, that homosexuality is acceptable to God and it's okay to be gay and a Christian all at once. Or that transgenderism is in line with Christianity. Or that having women exercise authority in the church of God is the will of our Heavenly Father. He's just sowing, he's, he's launching these, these, these softballs, so to speak, in, into the people of God. And over time, Christians take them up. People are slipping away from God's kingdom, and they don't even know it. And so we pray in this petition, Father, kindle in our hearts a love for your triumph and for the defeat of all your enemies. Because in this spiritual war, there is no neutrality, brothers and sisters. There is no Switzerland. Either we serve King Jesus and we fight for him, or we serve the pretender and usurper Satan. But beloved, there is only one result if we serve Satan. We will end up sharing his fate, which is a place in the lake of fire. God the Father has already secured the defeat of Satan and his attempted coup. He did it by sending Jesus and having him die on the cross for your sin and mine. His death and resurrection guarantees the breakdown of sin's power. It guarantees the breakdown of Satan's power. King Jesus has begun the work of reconciling God's elect unto God the Father and reconciling all of creation to the Creator. And that work cannot be thwarted. Jesus is saying that when he quotes Psalm 118. We're going to sing it in a few moments, but... In that passage in Matthew 21, he, he quotes that psalm to the Pharisees and the leaders of the church. He says, the stone that the builders rejected, and the builders are then a, a metaphor for the, the leaders of the community, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's only two results, only two paths to walk, only two choices that can be made. That stone, Jesus Christ, has already fallen on Satan's head, and he is bleeding from a wound that cannot be healed. It will kill him. 
The Father has set Jesus on the throne of power, given Him all authority in heaven and on earth. He is ruling over all, gathering in His church, keeping the devil at bay until the moment comes, as we confess it here, the moment that the fullness of the Father's kingdom comes, wherein the Father shall be all in all. That's quite an expression, hey? comes from the Bible directly. Wherein the Father shall be all in all. You know what that means? No more Absaloms. No more Ahithophels, traitors. No more devils. No more demons. No more evil people. No more divided hearts. No more sinful natures. No more brokenness of any kind, just purity everywhere, in everyone, so that we see and experience our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit in everything. That's the day we're waiting for, isn't it? Then let's pray. Father, light a fire in our hearts for your kingdom. Amen.